We are now into chapter 8 of the Hindu way of awakening. And this, this chapters that we're talking about are called the Hindu Revelation, part 1 and part 2. I really began to appreciate um, just sort of what an extraordinary thing Swamiji has done with this book. It's sort of, he was laying the groundwork prior to this so that we could all understand, um, it, you know, as if we were total outsiders, which of course many of us are not, but he writes, he writes so that you don't have to know anything in order to be able to appreciate what he's done here. And he's laid the groundwork by first explaining to us what a revelation is, that it's a direct perception of truth, that there is a quality to revelation that is not... Um, that makes it a, a, completely, a completely different way of knowing something, that all true revelations of a spiritual nature are consistent one with another. Then he talks about the whole um, interesting dynamic of how Hinduism was really presented to the West, first through the eyes of the Christian, mystic, uh, Christian missionaries, not mystics, Christian missionaries, and how much their bias has influenced the whole Western attitude, especially as he was saying that the Christian missionaries had a difficult time even perceiving it as religion because the rishis upon whom the, the understanding was based were so emphatic in their declarations of truth and, uh, and what they were making declarations about, the Christian missionaries had no way of understanding how someone could know those things, like the nature of the universe. And so they, did, they deemed it a philosophy. They deemed it, it had to be speculative. So now the obvious question is, and Swami's begun to answer, what is it that the rishis have declared? And so what he gives us in these several chapters is Sanatan Dharma. And Sanatan Dharma is the indigenous name, as he puts it, for what people commonly call Hinduism. Hinduism having been an imposition from the British um, because they had to call it something. Because the Indians themselves did not have a, have a name for it as a religion because the whole concept of religion was foreign to them. Which is, it's just, it's just so interesting to try to get our minds around that. Because to them, this understanding of the way life is, was just the understanding of the way life is. You know, that we don't have a, a name specifically for the concept of gravity. You know, or the fact that people are young and then they're middle-aged and then there's old. They're old. This is just the way things are. Because that's how, how we think, isn't that so? and that you have to eat in order to live. It's, it's not religion, it's just life. And what is true and has always been true about the Indian culture is that there is this understanding about the way life is. And that understanding is that it's not a material universe. That the, the declarations, the revelations of the rishis define the whole culture. I've, in the last uh, few weeks I've been working on um, helping with the school play and our school has maybe a quarter, maybe even a third of the families are from India. And our, our play is set in India this year. It's about Mirabai and Krishna. And uh, so I've, I've had this wonderful association with all my helping mothers, you know, many of whom are from India. And just this feeling about the Indian culture, which is so different. A friend of mine, completely unrelated, uh, we were just talking. He's a completely Caucasian-American man. He sort of asked me if there was some characteristic about people from India. And I said, you know, even the most materialistic Indian, who, who, who appears to be the most secular person, who is just really in America to make money and is maybe making lots of money, there's always something behind 
that, which is just this kind of um, assumption about the nature of life that you just don't find in people who were raised in Western Europe or in America. And so even if they have no actual commitment to it, it's, it's, the, it's not in Dharma, it's the way things are. Swami Kriyananda himself, speaking in India, in contemporary times now, um, India is going through an extreme, you know, indu- industrialization is not the right word, but just a rising e- economy, you know, just an enormous increase in prosperity and westernization and absorption of western ways. And many people lament it, I mean, Indian and American, because they see the sort of um, loss of their indigenous culture. Um, and Swamiji himself said, first of all, he said, it has to happen. He says, the, the role of India in the world is much too important for India to remain impoverished and backwards. He said, India has to rise up to the level of the other nations because so, it has a too important a role to play. And the second thing is, is oh, don't worry, he said. <laughs> it's so in the Indian soil, it's so in the Indian culture that in a time, after a time, it will simply right itself. Swamiji says, you know, ages and ages of rishis on that very land, all through that land, just make a quality of spirituality that the souls who live there can't resist. So, saying all that, Swamiji tells us about, first he introduces the whole concept of Sanatana Dharma, which, you know, Brenda, last week you asked me a little bit about how do you tell people something that they don't know about spirituality when you really want them to know I, I have personally found that the concept of Sanatana Dharma, just even the idea of Sanatana Dharma, is one of the best ways I've found for kind of bridging the gap of people wanting to reconcile Christianity with um, modern ways of thinking and so on, and just to, to try to explain that there's a truth beyond all religions, and all religions fit underneath it. This is what, what Swami's talking about here, that Sanatana Dharma is the eternal religion, the eternal truth, and he, he characterizes it in such marvelous ways um, when he talks about how Sanatan Dharma is rooted in the foundations of the universe. It excludes no practice that is designed to ennoble and uplift the mind, to awaken selfless love in the heart, to inspire longing for the truth, to loosen the bonds of egoism and selfishness, and to deepen our awareness of what is as opposed to what merely appears to be. And he goes on later to say, even if people have a very narrow religious concept, even one that excludes others, nonetheless, if their belief in it um, ennobles, uplifts the mind, expands the heart, increases their compassion, then it, it fits under the category of being part of the eternal religion. And the details really make very little difference. It's the direction in which that faith is taking you that really makes it um, a, a truth. So that's this is the revelation, the revelation of the rishis, which is the foundation of Hinduism. The first is, there is the nature of the universe, and the nature of the universe is that our happiness comes to us when we go in to refine that inner nature, refine it in the ways that are just described, to ennoble us, to free us from bonds of egotism, to open the heart, to be more compassionate toward others. And if you're doing that, you're, 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 you're in the fold. And then all these different masters have come through the ages, and Swamiji 
talks in here about how it was the tradition in the ancient times of India that nobody ever put their name on anything they wrote. Isn't it interesting? And he just raises the simple fact because they never saw what they wrote as any kind of an original creation. They were just looking out the window and talking about the sun. And then to sort of put your name on the fact that, oh, look, I looked out the window and talked about the sun, it just seemed completely antithetical to them because that would imply a kind of ownership of of something that simply is. Nobody invented the law of gravity, you know, or the or the directions or the uh, the way the tides flow. You might observe them, you might even articulate them perfectly, but to think that those are your own ideas, so it, you know, they went so far as to think just make my contribution here, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. It, and there's just, it, uh, it runs, it flies so completely in the face of everything about our culture. I was laughing. I saw uh, a movie about St. Francis, a DVD that someone gave me. Maybe you gave it to me, Lee, in fact. And it was entertaining because um, it, they, at least they made St. Francis joyful. But uh, it was an Italian film, and the film suffered from the fact that uh, Francis was so handsome and Claire was so gorgeous, you know, just so gorgeous, that a great deal of the time all she did was she just sort of looked like that. <laughs> and then she looked like this and looked like that. And um, She was, the actress was an up-and-comer, about 17 years old, which I guess was about the actual age of Claire, they figure, when she went off to be with Francis. And afterwards they were interviewing her and she was talking about, you know, that she was really able to relate to Claire because Claire seemed like such a modern woman to her. Claire knew exactly what she wanted and she wasn't afraid just to go after it. (laughs) I thought, well, that's sort of true. (laughs) No, we're close, but but that's sort of how even from our ego filter, we have such an intense thought that our fulfillment is personal. That to, to you know, make your great work and not even put your name on it, because if I'm just perceiving the truth, what does it have to do with me? Isn't that a beautiful? It's just such a beautiful way to look at it. So, um, uh, let me just think for a minute here. What I wanted to say. So then he begins to just sort of list out for us, just what are those basic characteristics about what how the world is. And it's very interesting. He really gets them down to a very few. And, and then once you have those basic concepts, and you can see already reading through this, you can already step into this plethora of gods and goddesses and begin to see what they were trying to communicate. So the first premise that all the rishis perceived is that this world is a dream. And what's so interesting to me when I was reflecting on this is the rishis don't just tell you this world is a dream. They tell you precisely how it's projected and what all the details of that projection are. And in this book, Swami's really just hitting the high points and giving us a, you know, a general statement. But in many of the scriptures, it's, it's extremely explicit with all these different nuances of Sanskrit vocabulary of shades of... Uh, consciousness and orientation and how, mu- how much ego is involved and how little and where the mind is. I mean, I don't ever think like that and I don't know the Sanskrit to be able to read it, but it's all very exact, just, just exactly like the scientific papers that physicists publish or, or Einstein explaining his theory of relativity. It can all actually be explained in detail. What I'm, what I'm wanting to say here is that 
Sometimes we imagine that these revelations are in, are in some way vague, you know, because we're dealing with realms that seem intangible to us. But, but a very important point to keep in mind is the order of this universe exists because it is orderly on higher levels. This is a projection of that orderliness. And in the same way that um, the scientists can look at this material world and find consistent laws and consistent ways that things manifest, that consistency goes all the way to the point where it becomes un- unmanifest. The only reason we can't see it and don't know it is because we haven't uh, the eyes to see or the ears to hear. Remember how uh, Master talked about in 1948 when he had the great Samadhi experience and he it was unusual because he was having this experience with Divine Mother and um, the disciples who were with him could hear his side of the conversation. And at least the way Master tells the story, of course he always understates his, con- his own position, or often does. But he says, Divine Mother took him around and showed him how she does it. And he was saying things like, he, they, he was heard to say, oh, that's how it's done, like this. Divine Mother, as we learn a little later in these very chapters, being the, that, that aspect of creation, that aspect of the infinite which manifests creation, just in the same way that the human mother is the form that actually gestates the baby and then gives birth to the baby. The male is required to give the energy and to complete the union that creates that child, but it's within the female form that the child gestates. Everything in this world is a symbol of higher worlds. We have to keep saying that to ourselves over and over again. Anything you see happening in this world, any image that is created by the way this material world works and people work in it is a symbol of, of how the divine is actually working throughout creation. This is the symbolic world. That is the actual world. And so that's the first perception of the rishis is that this world is a dream in the sense that, not in the sense that we're not experiencing it as real, but in the sense that you awaken from it and realize that it wasn't what it appeared to be while you were in it. And it's a very important distinction because it's not unreal in the sense that we can just dismiss it as unreal because look at us, we're bound by the laws. None of us could just get up and walk through the wall, even though I'm energy, it's energy. You know, even just, um, we get tired. Someone was saying to me that they said something about, oh, I feel so tired. And someone said, how can energy be tired? I've been thinking about that a lot in the last few days because I've been on a, a, a long hours, a little sleep terror to get these costumes ready for the school play. And I actually have thought to myself, how can energy be tired? It's a very interesting thought, isn't it? But we are, we're in the dream and the laws of the dream have hypnotized us into believing it's real, just exactly like I'm sure you all have, have sleeping dreams. And you have a sleeping dream and there you are. I have some sort of samskar of having done um, things I wish I hadn't done in past lives. Oh, what a surprise. But anyway, it still comes to me sometimes in my sleep that I've done something really stupid and got myself in lots of trouble. You know, various kinds of things that you would do. Be dishonest or unkind or disloyal. And then, you know, the consequences come crashing down on your head. And so I'll, I'll have these dreams periodically of having done something like that. And then my life comes crashing apart. I mean, I think they're actually just past life memories, although they're never 
they're never actually that, but they're samskars. And, and then somewhere toward the end of that whole experience, it'll occur to me, this is so stupid, why did I do this? And about then it'll occur to me, I think I'm asleep. <laughs> you know, just meaning like, I'm really not this dumb. But I have been this dumb, and, and so I, I sort of, in fact, I appreciate it. My subconscious mind, I think, is saying to me, don't ever forget. You know, just don't ever forget. Where there's dharma, there's victory. And I must, it must sense from time to time that I, there's some potential for weakening, so it sends me one of these dreams that actually lets me experience the consequences of a dharma. And when I'm experiencing it, it's just, it's a nightmare. That's the actual word. It's just a nightmare. My own actions have caused so much trouble for me, and then there I am having to live through, and you, know, you can just sort of see in front of you in the dream all that's going to happen to you because you were such a moron back here. Why was I such a moron like that? It's totally real. There's not the slightest bit that isn't happening. It's only when I wake up from it that, all, that it just, it's gone at that point. Now, the masters are trying to give us something we'll understand. You know, what it would be like to wake up from this. It's marvelous to meditate on that. Just marvelous. I, I, once it occurred to me, when you're in the astral world, it really is over. I mean, whatever, whatever's going on here, you, if you die on the battlefield, if you're blown to bits by a grenade, if you die of starvation, you know, if you're murdered, all of that stuff, it, it, could, it all happens, but as soon as you're not in the body, it's not happening anymore. It's just over. Even if there's still, remember that... A story in Autobiography of a Yogi where Master somehow was in the, was having a vision or a dream of being a soldier dying on the battlefield and then he was just so anguished and frightened and he was dying and then he came out of the dream and everything was just fine and he was so relieved to be well and then he was back into the body of the dying soldier and it was all just horrible and hellish again and amazing. And, and then we get really involved in it. But the Rishis have had this revelation and they've had it so powerfully, and they want us to understand it. They really want us to understand the basic premise, this life is a dream. Now, Master balances that, just for the sake of saying it properly, by saying, um, but when you hit your dream head on the dream rock, your dream head hurts. <laughs> but, but he said it better by saying, I mean, more appropriate, more pertinent, he said, but you have to relate to reality on its own level. Uh, you have to relate to every reality as it is. And so in this dream world, there are certain rules that we have to follow, and you can't just disregard it. People who try to use this philosophy to excuse laziness or fear, it doesn't work that way. And when we get into the gunas, it, we talk more about that. You, when you meet people, one of my earliest spiritual acquaintances, I mean really early, before I met Swamiji, he was a thief on the basis of Vedanta philosophy. Even at the time, I could sort of feel there was something wrong with that. But he thought it's all a dream, and you know, what difference does it make? So he, he acted in very adharmic ways, justifying it. But that's not relating to the reality on, its, on the level in which it's actually happening, or on the level that he was at. So he also um, really wants us to understand that this, how does he say it? The universe is a dream projected by the consciousness of the infinite spirit. And consciousness predates the creation of the universe. It is manifested in the human brain. That's something that's so hard for me even to take seriously, but people do really assert 
that the consciousness is created by the brain. And, and that's why Swami often tells us they imagine they can make a computer smart enough to be self-aware. It just seems so odd to us because it seems so backwards, but people actually really do believe that instead of understanding it like it really is. But then he tries to clarify this point because he says Hindus are accused of, of worshipping other, of pantheism, of worshipping everything as gods. And he, he just uses a simple image that the ocean becomes all the waves, but no single wave is actually the whole ocean. It's just so simple when he says it like that, isn't it? And it, it just, it's so rich. See, what he's trying to put across to us is how rich this way of looking at things is and, and how, how many questions it answers. I was talking to a woman who was brand new the other day. and I can't remember what we were... Oh, she said, I have lots and lots of questions. She said, I have so many questions. I said, there's an answer for every question on this path. I mean, at least I've found that... I, don't, I personally don't always know the answers. But um, there always is an answer because this is Sanatana Dharma. I mean, this path, meaning Yogananda, came to present Sanatana Dharma. And Sanatana Dharma explains how the universe is structured, how it works, how it affects human consciousness, and how human consciousness can relate to it. Once you say that, what question could be outside of that? You know, we might not know how we're eventually going to travel to other planets. We might not actually have yet experienced that other civilizations exist out there that we don't know anything about. But, but this explains how and why they would, you know, and what it might mean and what it might not mean. You know, to everything. It's just, and even more fundamental of how to relate to people, how to relate to ourselves, how to be healthy, how to overcome disease. It's all right there. Um, then he starts talking about the dream as vibration. I love the way he puts these things. You know that stillness begins to vibrate, and he talks about, um, let me think how to say it what I want to say about it. He talks about light and sound and about how the, the you know, there was the consciousness and then the consciousness begin, began to move. He talks about duality later. And how that vibration has sound, that vibration has light. What do I really want to say here? And that how even the Bible really talks about this. And, and that, and this is what the, um, this is what all the scientists are perceiving. They're perceiving all this whirling energy they're perceiving all this movement. They don't quite know what to make of it. And so Swami goes on to talk about how vibration has um, duality. And, and that, okay, let me, let me think what I'm trying to say. The essential nature of the universe is not what it seems. It's the first step of the revelation, and we will awaken from it. And that when we really begin to penetrate into the nature of reality, we, know, we find out that it's vibrating. That, that there's, there's sound and there's light. And that there's this energy that's happening. That's what we experience. We don't just go into a state of nothingness. We begin to, it, it, when we begin to interiorize our own consciousness, we begin to discover that we ourselves are created of this vibrating consciousness and that that vibrating consciousness has, has sound above all. You know, one of the fundamental techniques of our path is to listen to the Om. And, and what, the reason why listening to the Om is such a profound and uplifting experience for us is because we are going back to our actual, um, our, our actual own deeper reality. What made me, me? 
what made me myself is this vibrating power of consciousness which I can listen to as the Om. And the Om is the, is the most accessible form of that vibration. That's how Swami describes it. And it's so marvelous that in, in the Old Testament, it speaks of that vibration as light. And in the New Testament, it speaks of it as sound. In Genesis, it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And in the New Testament, it says, in the beginning was the Word. And there you have light and sound, two of the eight manifestations of God that he refers to. But then he describes that if you have one force that manifests the universe, it has to be creating the illusion of solidity by movement, by vibration, and that means it's always going to be dual. Swami uses an example, not in this book, but how if a, the propeller of an airplane is spinning, it, it looks like a solid form once it gets spinning fast enough. You can no longer see the individual uh, leaves of the propeller because it's moving sufficiently that it creates the illusion of form. And he's saying that in, in this world, what, because the vibration is moving faster than the eye can perceive it, really, it gives us the impression that things are solid. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are. It just means that the vibrations are happening on such a fast or subtle level that we can't see it. But there's always this um, point of reference. And so it's always, if it's always moving, it's always going to be going back and forth. Now what this, what this means for us, most practically, is that whatever happens in this universe, we can never hold it to one side or another. That everything in this universe from start to finish is always going to be this oscillating force. And he uses the example of the ocean again. You have the ocean, there are waves that go up and waves that go down, but it's never going to remain either up or down because there's the vast body of the ocean that always is going to bring it back you know, to, the, to, to its point of origin, essentially. Now, this is a very important revelation because people in this world imagine that they can take the part that they like and they can push everything over to the side that they like and they can hold it there. And yet there's absolutely nothing that shows you that that could ever be done because it's never done. Nothing in this world lasts forever. Now, of course, if we're young and we live for the moment, we think, well, what do I care? I remember consciously as a college student not caring. I used to quote Edna St. Vincent Millay's poem. Um, My candle burns at both the ends, it will not last the night, but oh, my friends and ah, my foes, it gives a lovely light. (laughs) I mean, that was my big wisdom at the age of 18. You know, what difference does it make? Because you're not thinking about the consequences. But sooner or later, we all reap the consequences in old age, disease, or death. In the life story of the Buddha, um, when, the, when Buddha was born as a prince to a very powerful king, the astrologers told his father that he would either be a great king or a great renunciate. And his father, being a great king, of course, wanted his son to be a great king. <laughs> because we think whatever we're doing is best. And uh, so he decided he would protect his son from ever knowing about the true nature of life. And he created a pleasure garden in which he kept his son virtually a prisoner. And no sign, really, of duality was allowed to enter that world. Um, 
the way it's told poetically, every, everyone who came was young, anyone who was ill was quickly taken away, no one was allowed to comment about sickness or suffering or death, even the flowers were taken away before the leaves turned brown and so on. And there was these you know, wide walls on the outside and finally Buddha became impatient as he grew older and he wanted really to know what was on the other side of the walls. So finally his father agreed that he would be allowed to go see, but he ordered everyone in the town to, you know, everybody young or old, old or sick or poor or ugly had to be out of sight. And um, But one poor palsied person broke through the ranks. And when Buddha saw this sick and elderly man, he said to his uh, companion, what's wrong with that man? This is how the story is told at least. He said, well, he's just suffering from what we all suffer from. And the Buddha said, me, you, my lovely wife, all of us, this will happen to all of us? Oh, yes, my Lord, no one can escape. And then he said, take me home, I've seen enough. And then they they took back, and then later he snuck out with his charioteer and was actually shown he met old age, disease, suffering, and death. And then suddenly Buddha looked at everyone and he said, If that's our inevitable destiny, what are we doing here? Why are we just acting so frivolously? Why are we not preparing ourselves for that reality? Or even more profoundly, he said, there must be a way to transcend this. You know, there must be a level of reality that is is greater that will free us from the threefold suffering, is how Buddhism eventually began to describe it. And then he went and he penetrated the dream and he conquered Mara it was called which is as we'll talk in a moment the the satanic power that keeps you bound to the dream and then he discovered the place beyond it all and then he came back to tell everyone about it but it's such a vivid and marvelous story these incarnations have their life you know everyone has their own drama and this was the Buddha's particular drama this intense effort to shield him from the reality of life and, and the enormous effect it had on him as soon as he perceived what was really happening. You know, there's a, a marvelous allegory for us, isn't it? I mean, this is the, the, sim, this is the revelation of the rishis. rishis. This world is a dream. It is always dual. You will never be able to hold it exactly the way you want it. Sooner or later, something will come to undermine that. Now, knowing that, doesn't it immediately, if one really deeply believes it, inform every every single thing that you do. Now, of course, Master has been, in in the way he's expressed the revelation, he's been very specific about what the proper response is. There have been ages and times when the proper response was simply to walk away. And always underneath in the Indian culture, not as if everyday people are um, always acting according to it, but there's always the thought that, well, you could just renounce everything and go to the Himalayas. And it's a very sort of understandable thing for you to do, which is, well, it's just a dream. I'll just go and live the single-minded life to, to like Buddha, to conquer um, this perception of the dream and live in the world beyond it. And even according to the traditional forms of Indian life, which are not necessarily followed anymore, at the end of a person's life, when you begin to approach your, really your last years, you renounce the world. You leave everything and go off and be a sannyasi because you're about to die, relatively speaking, and you don't want to die totally enmeshed. 
you've done your part, you've raised your family, you've served society, you've contributed what you can, then you just withdraw. And then you say goodbye to your family and you never come back. You don't just go off for a while, you just never come back. You're going to have to say goodbye to them at death. You break the tie before you die. I mean, isn't that just so opposite of the way we live? And I'm not saying that Indian culture nowadays follows it, but it's always in the back of the mind. Many people plan to retire to Rishikesh, retire to the Himalayas. You know, when I get old, then I'll do sadhana, which is also an illusion. But, but you see how different that revelation is than the way we live? Because this world is a dream. It's always dual. And, of course, what comes after that is that we have an intention here. And that t- intention is self-realization. And really, the only reason that the Rishis emphasize it so much is very simple. It's what we ourselves need in order to have the happiness we seek. And even if, in order to achieve that, we go through all these karmic conditions, which all of us are living through, this is where the practicality of Master's teaching comes in, gives us space to work out our karma. But we must always keep in mind this revelation of the rishis. And just, you know, things, we get annoyed, we get impatient, we get frightened. Go back to these understandings. So then he brings in this third quality, which is the revelation. The the rishis perceive this world is not what it seems. They perceive the vibration of the om and the light within us. And then they talk about the gunas, the three qualities of the gunas. That in every, how he says, duality is self-regulated by its own tendency to return to its own central reality, just as surface tension acts upon waves to draw them back to the overall water level. Thus, implicit in duality is a third quality. Vibrational movement is dual, but the, but, that, but the qualities of that duality or triune is how we put it. And the third quality um, is not a lack of movement, he says, but it's a positive drawing everything back to a state of stillness. I was thinking about this driving over here. You know, if there was no central point, it would just vibrate itself endlessly. Do you know what I mean? It's like it could only go so far and then it gets pulled back because it emanates from a certain point. This is the mistake that people make when they understand that this world is not what it seems and it's only energy and that it's hard to find a fixed point of reality. Then people start saying it's all relative. But relative means it's relative to something. And so this constant movement is relative to the fact that the, that the movement eventually ceases and it gets pulled back to a, a point. This is where Swami, I remember when he wrote this book and he came up with that image of the surface tension of water, that no matter how much the waves go up, there's always this force that's going to just pull them back to the calm again. It's never stormy forever. And as soon as the storm stops, everything subsides. And so there is this quality of, of rajotama and sattva guna, as he describes it in And rajas and tamasic are the activating energy that's always followed by a a fatigue. But that fatigue is not really um, any point of stillness. That fatigue is just the opposite of overexertion. You know, the wave goes way up and then it has to come down again. It can't hold itself up forever. And so we we get in our activity and we search after this and then eventually we're disappointed and we go back to this side but we're not really centered. We're just exhausted or or crushed or disappointed. And then gradually we get ourselves back together and we try again. This is actually reincarnation described. 
Yogananda said that the way Satan gets us to reincarnate over and over again is that, I love this, it almost works. <laughs> it almost works every time. It almost comes out right, doesn't it? It's almost perfect. And just, it's close enough that we just imagine just a little tweaking and we'll have it, won't we? So even if we die disappointed, we tend to think, well, you know, next time I'll just be a little smarter about, I'll really get my retirement funds in order. I will buy, you know, gold bouillon just like they told me. And I'll listen to my mother and I won't marry that woman. She really was not a good choice, you know. And maybe let's not have kids, okay? You know, just keep our money for ourselves. And just a few little things are, you know, being a woman is really a drag. I think I'll try being a guy. Being a banker was not for me. Let me be an artist. But, you know, just like, it's almost okay. So we've been very active, tried to make it work, and then we get really disappointed and exhausted, and then we get our energy up again, and then we start over like this. And all the while, there's an anchor point, which is even within us, we, there's an anchor point that is constantly sort of never letting us completely become untethered. Because th- this duality emanates from that sattvic energy. It, it's active and it's declined, it's active and it's declined, but always this active force, that's what Swamiji says, it's not, it's not a passive force, it's an active force that's always trying to awaken us and draw us back, trying to show us, look, this is where it's really trying to go. And he says that everything in, this is one of the fundamental um, revelations, is that there are always these three qualities, the activating, the withdrawing, and that which is trying to bring it all to calmness. And in every situation that you're in, that, um, and then they, they speak of the fact that when a person transcends this level of reality, they, uh, triguna rahita, they say, you have transcended all of the three gunas. You're no longer going in either direction in the, even the, the pull back to the inner point. You've transcended even that. And it's an interesting refinement on the whole thing. Let me just stay. In the Bhagavad Gita, when we were talking about it a lot, let me just think for a moment what I wanted to say. Then he talks about um, he talks about how this duality is always um, present in everything, Indian art, Indian philosophy. People tend to sometimes think of it, and he goes into this in the chapter beyond. You know, it's kind of a, an acceptance of the earthy quality of life, because as he talks in the next chapter, there's a lot about male and female, but it's really an attempt. Um, to explain that that duality is always there and yet it's never, there's never a commitment to that duality as the fulfillment of life's experience. There's just a strong attempt to always show us that it's present and that we have to work with those two forces um, at all times. Let me hold on for just a minute because I've lost my thoughts still. I'm going to actually, although it's a little bit early, I'm going to take a break right at this point, if you don't mind. So I'll stop for a moment. Um, I realized what I was trying to just reach for was an idea that comes in a slightly later chapter, which is why I was having such a confusing time with it. All right. Um, I sort of am not talking about the gunas as extensively as I sometimes do. I think it's partly because it was so much a part of the Gita course, I kind of feel like I've said everything I have to say on the subject. Swami basically introduces it, so we have the idea of the duality, but the, the most important concept here I love is the way he describes sattva-guna as that force which is always seeking to calm it. And again, this is like, um, 
from the practical point of view, which is always really important to take these ideas into something that you can actually use. Because you can think about things a lot, and it's fascinating. Some of us like to do that. But the most important part about the, the revelation is that in some way it makes us live differently and gives us some way of um, increasing our bliss and escaping suffering. And part of that is, is to become conscious of the three gunas acting in absolutely everything we do. There's the activating energy, then there's the reaction to too much of that, or the, um, or the downward pulling force of tamoguna, which is not always inactive, but it's darkening. You know, it can be, we're, we're very active, but then there's a downward force that makes us want to be angry or impatient or things like that. Today I was, just somebody was making really very good suggestions to me, but I wasn't interested. And, you know, it was like there was a darkening force that was coming into my mind that made me just really want to have that person go away. And, and I mean, I could observe all of this. This is the triune nature of things. And then there was a part of me, the sattvic part, that was just wanting to come back to center and get off of the too much energy and off of the tendency to be dark and just to come back to the center. In all circumstances, all three of those forces will be playing. And when we begin to understand our own reactions to life in terms of, ah, you know, um, but the vibration of creation is not only dual, it's triune. There's three forces. And we can always seek out the sattvic in the middle of it, the part that wants to pull us back to center and that's active. Later on in the next chapter, in just a moment, we talk about maya and Satan and the force that pushes us outward. But in any situation where that's happening, the sattvic is always there too. If we find ourselves tumbling down the hills of too much activity or too much um, dark energy, the sattvic energy is also always there. And if we just stop within ourselves, Swami describes it as, you know, the upward moving current of rajasic energy and the downward moving current of lessening that energy, which either becomes tamasic if we just collapse, but actually becomes can also be inward if we if we take that energy and instead of going to the opposite of activity, which is the, the opposite of rajas, which is tamas, but choose the third alternative, which is to retreat into our calm center. See, this is partly how we explain that the calmness and the peace of being a yogi is not the same as being low energy. Because we're not just taking the choice between rajas and tamas, we're taking the choice of sattvic energy, which, is, which stands steadfastly between the two and is, is the foundation point for those energies. And if we're anchored in that, even if we live very actively in this world, we're not so subject to that duality. We're more living in the third force. That's why it's important to understand that. Because people do get confused and an enormous amount of the Gita is, well, if it's all a dream, why should I do anything? Why, why should I do anything at all? Because, but to do nothing at all is to become tamasic. To become just... Uh, not engaged. So we have to act, but we have to act to bring out that sattvic energy. We have to master the tamasic inclination. That's why, I, as I recall when I was talking about this in the Gita, it sort of explained to me in philosophical terms, almost for the first time, why you must strive for perfection in everything you do. Because you must work hard to, 
to extricate yourself from the inclination to be tamasic. And, and, and the, it's, it's mastering the force of the gunas, to, to conquer the force of the gunas, and the force of the gunas are you're either overactive or you're, or you're dull and dark. And, and most of the time, when we're not trying to do things really well, it's not because we've transcended them, it's because we've given into the tamasic energy. And so we have to learn to, from our center, not um, allow that. We have to extricate ourselves from that, that particular duality. Well, does that make sense? It's a very important point. So then Swami goes on and he talks about how the, the greatest symbol of duality in this world, the most accessible, is the male-female duality. And the male-female duality, which is one of the most fundamental characteristics of human life, Someone once said that gender is the first thing you notice about a person and the last thing you forget. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? It also put it in an interesting thought, which is like, it's true, we always do notice gender. We're so sort of fixed on that aspect of duality that one rarely meets someone where you don't know in the first instant or cognize that person as a male or female. It's interesting because Swamiji has commented quite a few times over the years. He said it again recently. But he, he said it 30 years ago. He said, I don't see people as male or female. I'm just, I'm just not conscious when I look at people of whether they're in a male or female body. And when you stand back from it for a minute, you realize, well, it's really a very superficial characteristic, in fact. Because we all have the, the potential within us to be all things and whether or not we've started from the female or started from the masculine side compared to the freedom of the eternal soul it's really not a big deal but we do see it as very large because it is one of the most fundamental expressions of duality in creation and we live a great deal moved by that particular duality you know either in sexual energy or just the, the magnetism of male and female. Because the balance that it represents, the reason-feeling balance, is, again, it's one of the fundamental dualities of which this world is created. And these are all the things that the rishis point out to us. And they point out to us that, you know, in, in mostly, as, as Swami writes it, as Master said it, in most women, feeling is stronger and reason is hidden. In most men, reason is stronger and feeling is hidden. Of course, as we, not non-existent, but just less on the surface, of course, the more we develop on the spiritual path, the more both qualities begin to balance within us. But the rishis also talk a great deal then about the appropriate interaction between men and women in order to bring this into balance. And he touches here on this concept of shakti, how the feeling energy is what moves us to act. And he says, men who, are, who don't have enough of the feeling quality or, or don't have women to motivate them, it's women who want to get things done because they have a feeling that it needs to be done. The man will think about it and, and believe that it could be done, but it's the feeling quality that creates that sense of urgency, whether you're acting out, out between men and women or not. And that's the, you know, behind every great man there's a woman. But the, the Rishi's concept of that is that the female is the Shakti, and the Shakti energy is the feeling energy that, that takes the idea and puts it into action. But, but in a very traditional relationship of this, 
It's the man who goes out and makes it happen, but it's the woman who's the motivating, who gives him the energy, the incentive to do that. The concept of Shakti is, feminine being Shakti, is a very, very interesting um, aspect of the whole thing. And whether or not you're acting it out between a man and a woman is really a very small point of it, because that's just a, well, I would use the word, the grossest symbol of it. But it's really that quality within ourselves that we need to begin to work with those two forces and balancing at all times, you know, that the the reason versus the feeling. Feeling must be kept in a state of reason. Reason must be animated by a sense of feeling. And so the, um, he talks about how here the, uh, many of the Hindu temples Um, deal a lot with the male-female energy because we're always showing how those two forces come together. And and in the union of those two realities, you know, that's what leads us into the, what we're really looking for in ourselves and into bringing them into a balance point. So, um, so then he talks about how the masculine-feminine plays itself out in the actual creation. And this is one of the amazing things about all this sort of argument of making things gender neutral, that when people are trying, for example, and they really have gone through it, to try to make the Bible, the New Testament, you know, to not have Jesus talk about the Father and not have him call God He, we're losing a profound and absolutely important spiritual point. I mean, what... what uh, Jesus talked about, was Jesus talked about the Holy Ghost. And it, it, he didn't have a woman's name on it. They've since put Mary's name on it, essentially. But he talked about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And, and Swami talks about this in here. He talks about the Trinity as it's expressed in, in creation and how there's... Um, uh, you have the power of the Spirit beyond creation. You have the vibrating force of that infinite spirit that makes creation. And then you have in the center of all of that divine movement, there's the stillness of the inner self, which is the, the heart of every atom in the heart of every, every entity. And that the, the, the power beyond creation of stillness is masculine, that the motivating and moving force is feminine. And it's a, a, a very... Uh, important aspect when God talked to, when Jesus talked about God the Father who art in heaven you know he was talking about he was trying to describe in the only words he could think of to express at that time that people would receive he would talk about himself as the Son and then he would talk about the Holy Spirit which moves through it the Holy Spirit is an invisible force it's the vibration of creation and, and uh, just as the human in the human family, as I was saying before, the father is slightly removed, but it's the father's energy that creates, but then it's the woman who makes it happen. So we always speak of maya, and uh, the, that, that's the aspect of divine mother. The divine mother is the one who makes the creation happen, and she has two aspects. She's the, the force that actually makes the creation and then sort of moves us out from the divine spirit, but she has this other dual nature which is that she's also always trying to call us back into our true selves. Now this is leading us up to what are often very confusing symbols 
of feminine goddesses, female goddesses, that seem to have both sides of these nature inherent in them. On one hand, they're the outward moving energy, and on the other hand, they're calling us back to blessing. Mother Kali, whom we'll deal with later in the, in the book, is one of those forces, because there is this both sides to it. And the way then Swami talks about it is he talks about how women having energy, motivating energy, can be two kinds of energy. You know, the female can either be the nurturing, supportive, loving, mother type, or she can be the temptress. You know, drawing, uh, uh, just between men and women, drawing a man's energy towards sensuality, towards self-indulgence, you know, toward qualities that are not necessarily going to lift his consciousness. And just as the woman can sort of make two choices, she represents um, the, the female energy in creation. That there's the energy, that, that m- divine mother energy as Maya, who wants us to just keep moving outward. It's an outward moving force and it just keeps moving. And then the other side of the feminine nature of the divine mother energy is to bring us back into the home, into the heart, into the center of ourselves. And Swami says it's very confusing sometimes for Westerners to try to really see these both as the same force. But it's just, again, it's the dual nature with the point of stillness in the center. And then in the heart of all of that, you know, in the heart of every atom, there is its source point. Because this vibration could not exist without the source point. The fact that something goes both ways means that it's anchored somewhere. So we find ourselves riding the waves, but we're riding the waves because we're swimming in the ocean. And, we're, and it, we're, if we, even if we just feel waves, somewhere within us is that source point. Source is a very interesting word in this context because it has to start from somewhere. That's the still point of spirit that sets, sets the vibration in motion at all. Yeah. That's a sound that's really far away from the ohm. <laughs> that, is not God, that is not a God-reminding noise. D- did these things go on indefinitely? There you go. Thank you, Lord. Isn't it a strange world we live in? I suppose that's useful. I was walking once and I, I touched a car and it did that. You know, boy, does that ever scare the bejesus out of you? That's all I can say. Man, oh man, I just accidentally bumped into it and it, it started doing that to me. And then its its owner got really upset too. There's a great tendency to blame at that point. You know, this is not my fault. Anyway, I was talking about the still point of spirit within everything, wasn't I like that? You know, again, now what I want to just sort of review to just bring us back to where we are. This is, this is the Hindu revelation. The dream nature of the world, the nature of that dream is, is, is vibration, and that vibration is dual movement. But that, that duality, the, the vibration of duality has three qualities. Okay, which is the sattvic is always in the center of it, so that you never actually really, there, there's never actually anywhere that's completely out of control, <laughs> except perhaps that alarm out there. Okay, and we just live with things like that. People ask why we're so stressed. You know, a sound like that just 
sort of constantly. And I mean, there's just many, many sounds that just really begin to affect our actual vibration. I read somewhere that um, high school adolescents who listen to really that really hard-sounding music and they'll tell you they can't do their homework unless they're listening to it. It's actually true because their actual vibration gets so set to that that they they feel um, uneasy unless it's still coming into them. It's very... it's, It's... it's amazing if you start thinking about yourself as vibration. I don't want to make us nervous because we do live here. Um, the other aspect of that which Swamiji often emphasizes is you know, you can control your own vibration with your magnetism. Vibration is just energy and energy is related to magnetism. And the more we do Kriya and the more we're devoted and the more we are attuned to the infinite, the more that those vibrations remain rooted because this is what we were just talking about. We have this choice at all times as to which aspect of Divine Mother we want to tune into. Do we tune into the outward moving energy that's tempting us at all times to follow sort of the will of the wisp of egoic satisfaction? Or do we tune into the opposite side of that, which is the, the aspect of Divine Mother that is uplifting? And, and the, the image of women without, I mean, as a woman I'm allowed to say these things without being considered chauvinistic or anything like that, but it is a fact. And I, I do really feel, I'm, I'm a, a, I've never been a feminist or anything even remotely like that. And I'm, I'm strongly conscious of how little women appreciate um, the masculine point of view sometimes. And the actual realities of the way this male-female magnetism works and the responsibility that women have in regard to it. It's one of the reasons that our society is such a mess and all scriptures speak of this. You know, when women become immoral in a very traditional sense, society falls apart because it's the feeling aspect that that determines the direction in which energy will go. And if the feeling aspect of women is directed towards self-indulgence and sensuality, and in the, if women are not restrained, then there is nothing to restrain men. And so it's, the, it's the, what women have considered progress, which is the fact that women are allowed to be unrestrained now in virtually every area of life, that is largely undermining what women really want, which is a stable society and you know, men to help them raise their children. And all of the things that women want they, by not understanding the way this dual, dual energy works between masculine and feminine, they've, they've um, um, what do you say, spoiled their own reality. They've, they've cut their own throats is sort of what I want to say, but that's a little bit of a strong word. Because women are trying to, and I just speak of it because it's been a strong movement, women have, have pushed this one direction as if they were only one side of the coin, not realizing that if they push it, the other side of the coin is going to come with them. And the other, it's not going to... They're, they're influencing the whole reality, and men don't know how to respond to it at all. I mean, whenever I have ever taught classes on relationships, you know, I, if, if there are any men in the room, which there sometimes are, they're so intensely grateful to hear a woman actually have some clue as to what it feels like to be a man confronted with feminine energy that doesn't understand the consequences or its actual role. So I'm, I'm also by no means a traditionalist in any stretch of the imagination about gender roles or anything like that. But male and female, that male and female duality is a fundamental quality of the universe. 
And if you are a woman relating to a man or a man relating to a woman, you're going to be involved in it. And, and it really helps you, helps to understand the reason, feeling, dynamic, and on the woman's side. And, and it's not a, an accident that the Rishi's revelation put it that way. It's, it's the nature of feminine energy. And if you're not in relationship to, to men, or if the man you're relating to and you yourself are so inherently balanced that you're not you know, strongly active in that, but if you're in a female body and someone else is in a male body, it's very, very rare not to be influenced, at least to some extent. And I think it's, it's something well worth contemplating. It's well worth contemplating for men to see... Um, what they're drawing out of women, what they're attracted to in women. And it's very helpful for women to observe the quality of their own energy and what they're actually doing. I've, I've shared a story. I, I was counseling a couple many, many, many years ago. I say that because I don't want you even to try to guess who it was. Um, uh, how do I say... I'm not going to use that specific example, but the point being, women understand what it is to be a mother and they imagine that to be a wife is something different. That's, what I, that's the real point. Because to be a mother is to nurture, to be selfless, to, th- to, to think always what is best for the other. And for some reason, women tend to think that to be a wife is something else. In, in America, the ideal love is a romantic, sultry, sexual love. In, the, in India, the ideal love is mother love. And really, mother love is love, because mother love is nurturing and selfless. Of course, it doesn't have the sexual component, but hey, folks, maybe that's just a passing sort of flash in the pan and not the basis of everything. It's not to say that it can't exist, but mother love is the love that, that really um, holds the world together. And I think the extent to which that has been lost in our culture, American culture, is why we're falling to pieces. The specific advice I gave to that woman was, you would never talk to your son like that. Why do you talk to your husband that way? You know, like, think about that. It's really a very interesting thing. If you would not do that or say that to your child, why would you do that to your partner or your spouse? I mean, meaning if you're trying to nurture and help, you know, there's this great sense as a mother or as a parent that the purpose is to help that individual to flower. And that individual is not there to make your life work. It's You're there to make their life work. And of course, if you do that beautifully, then why would you do that? Because it brings you everything you really want, doesn't it? Whereas this feeling female thing that demands like that, it just... There's no magnetism in that. Where's the magnetism in that? And it's very difficult because feeling, which dominates the feminine consciousness, wants it to happen. And men, with all due respect, can be pretty fixed in their point of view and unresponsive to that feeling nature. I mean, isn't that the dynamic that happens all the time? The feeling is trying to get him to move. And he's thinking about it. <laughs> and she, you know, and he keeps thinking about it. She keeps talking and she keeps talking until he can't stand it anymore. And then, bang, there's some big fight about it. Or as Swamiji says, you see lots of couples in which the man has stopped talking. 
You know, and the woman just talks and talks and talks, and the man would just stop talking. Because she couldn't, you know, he, he could never figure out how to relate to all her feeling energy, and he just retreats back to the other. These are very, very fundamental. That's why people spend so much time acting out this male-female dynamic, because it's going to teach us. It's going to teach us the fundamental duality of the universe. And so we're compelled, as Sri Yukteswar said, I love the way he puts it in the Holy Science. He talks about the purity of the heart. And, and don't, you know, the, when I'm talking male-female, I'm really talking about masculine and feminine. Man and woman are the best examples. But you don't have to be in a male-female relationship. You don't have to be in a relationship. You don't have to be in a male-female relationship in order to be acting this out. But these are the forces that will be in play because they will always be in play. Um, uh, Let's see, where was I? What was that thought? Oh, Sri Yukteswar, thank you. Sri Yukteswar in the Holy Science talks about blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That's Jesus' statement. You know, and he, that's in the Beatitudes and he tells you the, all these different things, what will come to you. If you're forgiving, you'll be forgiven. Well, that's great. But if you're pure in heart, you will see God, which is a sort of where we're all trying to go. So he talks about, and don't misunderstand me, I do not I have not read and studied the holy science. I'm not one of those great souls who actually understands it. I have this little fragment that I'm drawing from it. But he actually says in there about how do you purify the heart. And he talks about the different stages of purifying the heart. And he talks about, it was the second or third stage, which is basically where most of the human race is, where we are compelled to be in relationships with other people. We are just compelled. And he was answering that question, basically saying, and then only... At, a, at the fourth and fifth stage, can we actually continue the purification of the heart in solitude? But prior to that, we were, are the, we're compelled to be in relationships because only through that interaction, really, of these dualities, just acting out these dualities over and over again, do we finally become so, well, truthfully exhausted by them that we begin to seek that first that sattvic core within us and then through that sattvic consciousness to actually eventually transcend it altogether, which is when we can then go off and live in a cave by ourselves and finish the process. But until then, we are compelled to be in relationship. He didn't mean compelled to be married. He was just talking about even just living in society and just watching the reason, feeling, um, duality play itself out until we can understand how to come into the balance point and really feel Divine Mother in all her aspects. Feel her in the, the tempting force that wants to pull us away from our center and feel her in the loving force that wants to draw us back. And once we, we resist that satanic energy, which is just trying to perpetuate our commitment to delusion, you know, to keep us in the Tamo Rajo constant thing. Um, and it, and he, he, he says, and very strongly, you know, that that satanic force is very um, committed. And, and this is another part of the Hindu revelation, okay? This world is a dream, it's a duel, it will never find perfect happiness. There's three qualities to that. Male, female is an enormous balancing point. Um, but the, uh, now I just forgot exactly what I was going to say, isn't that funny? 
oh, the satanic force, that there's an active force trying to keep you out of your center. And, and that's just really, really fundamental. And it's another one of those sort of um, wrong enough to be really dangerous ideas that's really popular these days, is to try to say that Satan is just not really there. You know, it's all good and it's all beautiful. It, it isn't. <laughs> it's dual and there's a really conscious force that's trying to, to pull us away from our center. What that means is you have to do battle. That's why, as, as we know, every spiritual epic is a war. It's because it is a war. Because part of the, of the revelation of Sanatana Dharma is there's a conscious force trying to pull us away. And unless we plant ourselves firmly and resist that force, we'll just get carried away. You see how important that is to understand? Everything follows from that. If there were no active force trying to pull us off-center, why would we do sadhana? Why would we meditate? Why would we um, fight to be generous? Why would we work to have good attitudes? We would just drift. And, and you have to deeply understand the presence of that satanic force because you have to realize that every moment it's, it's going to be vibrating close to you. And that every moment is a choice between these forces. I don't mean to make you conscious of it all the time, you know, Swami has a song about that. He calls it devil worship. How you're just thinking about nothing but that. But every day one has to realize it's the battle of Kurukshetra. It's like, where will my energy go today? Who will I be this day? Will I be an uplifting force in the universe? Will I respond to my uplifting nature? Or will I not? And it's what we face every single minute of every day. And it doesn't matter if you're sick in bed, if you're immobilized, paralyzed, you know, and can't lift a finger to serve the world. It doesn't make any difference. It's a matter of consciousness. I, I will say one last thought and then I'll, I'll stop for the evening. Um, <clears throat> uh, there's a book by Stephen Levine. It's, it's decades old now. It was one of the first books written about conscious dying, about death and dying at the time when he started. <clears throat> And he raised this marvelous thing that I've never forgotten from the... <clears throat> I, don't, I remember two things about the book. I'll tell the first one, the, the least important one first. This woman wrote to him and he put it in his book. She said, my Jewish grandmother is dying in an old age home in Brooklyn and I'm thinking of going and sitting by her bedside and reading her the Tibetan Book of the Dead. <laughs> He said, why don't you go sit by her bedside and sing Yiddish love songs? (laughs) In other words, you have to relate to people according to their own reality, but I I was always charmed by that. It was, can't you just see some young hippie going sitting by, you know, and wants to read? Can you imagine what she would do? Probably make her want to die sooner, you know, so she wouldn't have to listen to it. But uh, what he talked about, which was fabulous, which is he said, he talked about what happens when a person body when their energy begins to fade and they can't activate their own body anymore and they become bedridden. I remember once when uh, at a time I, I wasn't there but someone told me when Karen Levin who died of cancer and she died at home at Ananda and toward the end of her life she was lying in a very awkward position and Durga was visiting her and she, and Durga said something to Karen about you know don't you want to put your head back up on the pillow and Karin said, you have no idea how difficult that would be at this point and how much energy it would take for me to move my head like that. I was with Paula when she was dying 
when she was, we had this sort of about three days when she was passing, her three-day passing party. And the nurses were concerned because she hadn't urinated for quite some time. And somehow they asked me to say it. I said, Paula, they're concerned because you haven't gone into the bathroom in all these days. She says, oh, I hope to die before I have to pee again, she said. (laughs) I said, it's that difficult. Oh, yes, she said, just like that. I love that. I hope to die first. But uh, what he was saying was, we're so accustomed to be able to do what we want with our body, at least to be able to get up and walk around, that we're always responding to inner shifts of consciousness with a physical action. I feel a little uncomfortable, I'll roll over in bed. It's too hot in here, I'll go down and turn down the heater. Gee, it's stuffy, let me open the window. Oh, I feel so restless tonight, I think I'll go to a movie. You know, I'll call my friend, I'll read a book, I'll turn on the television, I'll get up and exercise. And he said, and of course, as you begin to approach death, your capacity to operate your body just begins to go away from you. He said, but the oscillations of consciousness do not change. So suddenly, you're there, your consciousness is still oscillating as it has been oscillating, but you can no longer um, distract yourself or distract yourself is really what he says, or change it by changing your body, and you're just there with your oscillating consciousness. And he said that often dying people go through a period, as he described it, of intense, almost frantic restlessness. Because as as all that consciousness oscillates and just hits against this totally unresponsive form, and then he said they'll pass through that and often come to quite quite a lovely state of peace. But... but, uh, the phrase that I really got from that is he, he recommended that we, we train ourselves to solve the problems of consciousness on the level of consciousness. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? It's just such a vivid thought, isn't it? At all times, these different forces are playing against us. The world is a dream. It's dual. We have, it's tamasic, rajasic, and sattvic energy. The Divine Mother is with us in both her forms. And how often do we solve the problems of consciousness on the level of consciousness? But sooner or later we will, either because something will happen to us. This is what happens to us in what's happening in our society now. You know, we're losing our money and eventually we lose our health. But you can be totally, as I was starting to say earlier, you can be totally bedridden. But it's really, it, it, was, it was always about consciousness. And so we always have our consciousness. We can always work with that. Yes, it's more of a challenge if you have less options. But sooner or later, that's where we're going. So the, the earlier we start, the better off we'll be. Isn't that so? Because this is a dream. And when we come out of the physical, this material world dream, we'll be where we have always been. We'll recognize that the entire experience was only about our consciousness. And that, that, that's all that really, Sanatana Dharma is to refine our feelings, to ennoble our hearts, to awaken our compassion. That's what Sanatana Dharma is. That's the only point in life. And the more we get on with it, well, the better off we'll be. So, that's the story for these chapters. I think next week we're not having a class, I realize. Next week is the class we're not having. And so the next reading is the next two chapters, 10 and 11. But it's two weeks from tonight. So thank you all for coming.